Well, I, I saw something this week I couldn't believe was happening in a country of such abundance and prosperity. Uh, you probably saw it too. It's hard to fathom, but riots broke out across uh, several cities uh, over a shortage of Szechuan sauce in the McDonald's restaurants uh, this last week. This teriyaki-flavored dipping sauce called Szechuan sauce um, had been discontinued about a decade ago, but McDonald's brought it back for one day only as kind of an advertising ploy, and it was to be available in participating restaurants. But what they failed to note in their advertisements was that there were only going to be 20 to 70 packets in each restaurant. So consequently, hundreds of people waited in line. Some people camped out at McDonald's to uh, get one of these packets of Szechuan sauce and um, only to discover that they didn't have enough and they were turned away empty-handed. So customers got angry and riots broke out in some cities. One crowd got so uh, upset and angry that they stood outside of McDonald's chanting, we want sauce. We want sauce. And until the police had to be sent, called in to disperse the crowds, it's kind of mind-boggling to see how crazy people went over a packet of sauce. Adults were yelling, kids were crying, and one young man even got up on the counter and threw a tantrum because he didn't get a packet of sauce he was seeking. Uh, he rolls around on the ground, and <clears throat> it's just kind of weird. But, you know, we're all seeking something. Uh, maybe not such Juan sauce, but one of the great questions of life is, how do I find joy? Um, what's going to satisfy the deepest needs and longings in my, my heart? And we're starting a message series today that really started about 500 years ago with a young man by the name of Martin Luther uh, who was searching for something. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, and so he was going to the university for that, but he really felt called to be a monk. And one day as he was traveling home from his father's uh, house uh, to the university, he found himself in the midst of this horrible thunderstorm. And he was almost hit by a lightning bolt. And so he cried out, he said, St. Anne, save me, and I will rescue me, and I'll become a monk. And uh, so he made it safely back to the university and decided to become a monk against his father's uh, will. But Luther was plagued by feelings of guilt and condemnation. He worried about not being able to measure up to God's standard. He was afraid of spending eternity in either purgatory or hell. And um, it said that he would spend up to six hours in the confessional booth. You know, and the priest would be like, just stick to the major things. <laughs> but uh, he thought that becoming a priest would help alleviate some of this fear. But instead, he ended, as he studied and, and learned more about God and his holiness, he became even more afraid. So much so that when he uh, presented at his first Mass, uh, he almost fainted because he was so fearful of presiding over the elements uh, for a holy God. The good news is that God took this guilt-ridden, frightened monk and transformed him into a courageous leader, um, 
through studying God's word, he became a professor and he wrote these uh, courses on the book of Romans and such. He discovered a very important truth, and that is that it's by grace that we are saved through faith, not by works. And that was a great revelation and something that, that was very different from what was being taught in the Catholic Church at that time. And, and nothing I'm saying in this series is against the current day Catholic Church. Um, they had some problems. Martin Luther was not a perfect man either, and he had his issues as well. But this discovery changed Luther, and he became full of joy. The picture that you see there like, looks like a bad driver's license picture or something. But he actually um, had faith in a loving God and went on to lead the reformation of the church uh, that was a part of our history. And the purpose of this series is to help us to better understand who we are as a Protestant church. But the larger purpose is to guide us into a deeper love of God, of his word, as we're reminded of what really satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. So the Reformation began 500 years ago. Jessica did this awesome job of decorating the uh, altar area up here. And um, On October 31st, Martin Luther nailed a list of statements uh, or thesis to a church door in Wittenberg, uh, Germany. And it's really said Wittenberg, but... I'm not German, and I don't know German, and I'm not going to pretend I do. So these uh, 95 theses were written and posted uh, to challenge some of the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And he wanted to start a debate to revitalize the church and reform the church, and he did. And there were five primary emphasis or themes that came out of that time Uh, And they are in Latin, sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, sola gratia, which is grace alone, sola fide, which is faith alone, solus Christus, which is Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. So we're going to be looking at one of these each week over the next five weeks and talk about why Luther would risk his life to change the church's teaching on them and why they're important to us yet today. Today we're going to talk about scripture alone, and I want to start by explaining what we don't mean when they were talking about uh, scripture alone. And the first thing that it doesn't mean, scripture alone, doesn't mean scripture only. It doesn't mean that we don't take anything into account when we're thinking or making decisions or talking about theology or doctrine. Uh, John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism, who was born a couple hundred years after Martin Luther, um, created what was known as the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Okay, big word. Uh, Is there any quad drivers here? You got a quad? All right. How many wheels are on a quad? Four wheels, right. We have quad. uh, Quads have four wheels, and Wesley taught that Scripture is primary, But there are three other wheels, three other sources that come into play when we talk about doctrine, when we talk about theology and and making decisions in life. And the four sources are scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. You learned this in your confirmation class, if you were part of a confirmation class in your membership class. Um, For Wesleyan United Methodists, scripture is considered the primary source. 
uh, informing our theology. But we don't check our brains at the door. I mean, you use reason. And uh, we aren't arrogant enough to think that we're the first people to read or study the Bible. So we also look to tradition and how things have been translated in the past. And experience comes into play as well. So you have all four of these working together as we're thinking about theology and about decisions in our day-to-day life. You know, am I going to take this job? You consider all four. But if any of the three go against Scripture, then Scripture wins out. And Scripture alone doesn't mean Scripture only, but it is primary. So then the second thing it doesn't mean is Scripture alone doesn't mean that Scripture has more authority than God or Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all authority belongs to God. Uh, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when we talk about the authority of the Bible, it's kind of shorthand for talking about the authority of God. That when we say Scripture alone has authority, we mean that God uses the Bible to express his authority and his truth. All right, so two things that it doesn't mean. What did... What does it mean? What are the two primary understandings of the principle of Scripture alone? The first is that the Scriptures have the final authority. The Scriptures are God's word, and God gets the last word. Okay. And prior to Martin Luther and the Reformation, the the Catholic Church was the only church, and the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at the time was that the Pope teaching had as much authority as scripture. Uh, It was infallibility, uh, was believed to be a supernatural gift that the recipient, the Pope, uh, was shielded from teaching error. So whatever the Pope taught was infallible, and scripture had authority, but the Pope's teaching about scripture had just as much authority as the Bible. And at that time, it led to all kinds of... uh, new rules about indulgences and other corruptions in the church. And Luther wanted people to look at Scripture as the final authority in their lives and in the church. So one of the biggest shifts that took place during the Reformation was a new understanding of the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. And our memory verse this week is from 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's read it together. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 So the Bible has authority because it's inspired by God. It's God's word. And because it's God's word, it should have the highest authority in our lives, too. And I would invite you to think about um, that in regards to your life. Uh, Where is God's authority when you're making decisions and the authority of the Bible? How does it come into play in your decisions in your day-to-day life? Is it primary? Or are there other things that take precedence over the Bible when you make a decision? Scripture alone speaks about God and his word being the ultimate authority in our lives. And then the second meaning of Scripture alone is that the Scriptures are sufficient. Um, Luther taught that the Bible contains everything needed for salvation 
and for living the Christian faith. And at, Martin, at the time of Martin Luther, uh, when he posted these 95 statements on the church door, the Roman Catholic Church, as I said earlier, was selling indulgences as a way to get to heaven. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week when we talk about uh, we are saved by grace through faith. But Martin Luther taught that Scripture alone was sufficient for salvation, that in it were the words that led to Jesus, which led to life eternal. And so he was bringing people back to the Bible. And I want to invite you to pull out the Bible there in your pew, or if you brought your own, to pick it up and just kind of thumb through it and look at it for a minute here. We have access to Bibles. How many have a Bible in your home? We're free to purchase as many of them as we want in as many different translations as we want. And prior to the invention of the printing press in 1436, the Bible was on scrolls and on parchments, and very few people had a Bible in the Middle Ages because each Bible had to be written by hand. And it took many years for uh, a monk who was working in a scriptorium to, to, to create a Bible. Each Bible was made of vellum, which is uh, sheep hide. Guess how many sheep it took to make a Bible? How many sheep gave up their life for every Bible? <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> 250 sheep. 250 sheep to make a Bible. And um, it took 1,000 hours to copy it. And in today's currency, it would cost about $100,000. So not very many people had a Bible. And prior to 1436, when the printing press was invented, the idea of everybody having a Bible was out of the question, uh, even if they could read it. But by Martin Luther's day, it was becoming more available. But the translations were all in Latin, right? Not very many people read Latin. So in 1522, Luther, at great personal risk, he was hidden away, translated the Bible into German so that common people could begin reading and studying the Bible. There were two men prior to him that stand out as uh, people that tried to translate the Bible, Wycliffe, or did, Wycliffe, who died of natural causes about three days before he was to be executed for heresy for translating the Bible, and John Huss, who was burned at the stake for translating the Bible. So he did this at great risk, but he took the risk because he believed so strongly that everyday people should have a Bible and be able to read it, and um, that everything that was needed for life eternal was in that book. And I don't know if you've thought very often about the value of this book that we have in our homes and in our hands and in our pews and and available to us. Um, If you read it on a daily basis or once a month, or once a year. or But the Bible is a gift to us. This is God's Word. It's alive and active. It's a book like any, unlike any other book ever written. In this book are sacred words, holy words, the words of God. And that means that this book is not like the newspaper 
that sometimes gets the story wrong or needs to have a reprint to, you know, a retraction the day after. It's not like a magazine that tries to be in vogue. God doesn't seek to be in vogue. He seeks to be incarnate, God with us, and he does that through his living word and through his written word. And in these pages, we experience and find God speaking directly to the needs in our life, in our church, in our world. This book is not like the weekly advertiser trying to sell you something you don't need. This book, these words, meet the deepest need of every heart to be loved, to be forgiven, to rise above, to overcome, to find reconciliation and peace with God, to find life. The author of this book is not fickle or subject to mood swings that he should change his mind or have a bad day or forget what he's written in here. This great God never changes, and it makes no difference if the words in this book were written 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. The God that you find in these pages of this book is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word is unchanging, and his word is spoken into our lives when we read this book. The author of this book knows each of our hearts, and he promises that like when the rain falls on the earth, which we've been getting plenty of, and goes forth so his word, when it is sent forth, accomplishes its purposes in our lives. It never returns to him void. The words in this book are life-giving and life-changing because the author of this book is life-giving. This is the Bible. It has history. It has stories. It's got suspense. It's got romance, traitors, and heroes. It's got genealogies and more genealogies and more genealogies. It's God's Word. This is the Bible. And while the Bible is the most beloved by many, people died to translate it. People are dying today to translate it. I just read that in Asia they're trying to... uh, get it translated into four new dialects there at the risk of their lives. Um, Thousands and thousands of people have died because they refuse to deny the Savior that they find in its pages. But it's also the most derided, most denied, most disputed, most dissected, most debated, most outlawed, most destroyed, and most banned book ever in history. This book has been under attack century after century after century, And yet, it's still the most read book in the world, the most published book in the world, the most translated book in the world, the best-selling book in the world, and it still changes lives today. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 says, The grass withers and fades away. Everything else is temporary. It's going to be gone. But the Word of God stands forever. The Word of God stands forever. And I keep coming back to the Bible as the answer to life's hurts and struggles and questions because God speaks to nations, to people, to churches, to you and me through his word. And he will speak to you in your small group, so get in one. He will speak to you as you study it at home, so read your Bible. And if, if you want to know what will really satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, the answer is in this book. And it has one theme, one story, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, and the star of that story is Jesus. 
the, the, the savior of the world. Millions of lives have been changed as people have opened their Bible and let it speak into their lives. Jesus said uh, this in John 8. He said, I, if you continue in my word, if, if you continue to read my word, absorb my word, live it out, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is God's word. Now I have a question. Do you have a Bible? Do you read your Bible? Are you letting it transform you? Psalm 119 and 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. It's a story that gives your story meaning, and you'll find the greatest joy when you find your place in God's story that's told in this book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I praise you. Uh, We thank you for your written word. We thank you for your living word, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise of life in him and for um, just the years and years that you have been active in the churches, helping us to understand it and apply it to our lives and to transform the world. And I pray that you'll be with each of us as we go through this series. Help us to listen to you, listen to your word, and be changed by it. Lord, if there's anybody here that hasn't asked you into their life, doesn't know you or how to have life in you, I pray that they would take that step this morning. It's as simple as just saying the words, Jesus Christ. I invite you into my life. I accept the forgiveness that you offer, and I receive you as my Savior. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um,